All right, episode number 11 is here. Today on the Artist of Motion podcast, we feature the legendary Senior Grandmaster of the International Karate Connection Association, Chuck Sullivan. I jokingly mentioned a while back while discussing this podcast with Chuck that uh, if you're in Kempo and you don't know who Chuck Sullivan is, you're living under a rock, in a cave, buried in a glacier, flying around on an asteroid in outer space somewhere. Chuck's been studying Kempo since February of 1959, which at the time this podcast is going to air is going to make 59 years of Kempo. It's a long time, folks. Chuck is a wonderful human being who has influenced and taught thousands of people in his career. I want to take a moment to say a special thank you to Chuck's daughter Janine and her husband for letting me visit their place in Paso Robles and interview Chuck, as well as to Lainey for letting me steal a couple hours of Chuck's time. Big thank you to all of you. I'm going to go ahead and call this a part one. We ran over 90 minutes for this one, and we literally only covered the period between 1959 when Chuck started training through about 1965 or so, with just a handful of 70s slash 80s slash present day references. So we are definitely going to have to do at least a part two here soon. All right, then let's get to the conversation. All righty. We are here in beautiful Paso Robles, California. I have Chuck Sullivan and Lainey Klesko here with me. So Chuck, anybody in Kempo knows who you are, what you've been doing. For those of our listeners out there who are not part of the Kempo community, can you give us some of your background for us? Oh, background. All right. Um, I started Kempo in uh, February of 1959. And at that time, Kenpo was not, Kenpo, the, the, the word karate or karate wasn't even in the, uh, the American vocabulary. Nobody knew what it was. I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it. And um, just so happened that I was, uh, my brother-in-law came home one night. He was living with us right after he got out of the Marine Corps. And I uh, came home one evening and he said, did you know there's a judo school up on Tweedy Boulevard? And I said, no, but uh, wear on Tweety, I'm gonna because I want to check this out. I'd always had a desire to to wear a gi. I'd seen them. I'd never seen one in person. I've only seen pictures of them. But they just looked cool to me, and I knew I knew what that was all about, of course. Everybody did. Everybody did well, judo and jiu-jitsu a little bit. They heard the term, but they weren't really that familiar with what it really was. So I went up there like the next evening, and I cupped my hands at the window, looked in, and uh, there was some mats on the floor, a little load divider, a chair, a, table, uh, a desk, some pictures on the wall, and that was it. And um, not very impressive, but um, still kind of intriguing. And I'm about ready to leave, and there was a couple of guys leaning against a car parked right in front of the place. And one of them says to me, he says, are you interested in that? And I said, oh, yeah. How much are the judo lessons? Because in those days, everything had a price tag. And it depended on cost as to whether you're going to do it or not. So the first thing I asked was, how much? So he said, well, we don't teach judo here. And I said, oh. I looked up on the roof, and there's a great big sign that said J-U-D-O. Okay. I said, well, <laughs> well what is this, this? And there was another word on the window. And, it was, and I said, I did the best I could. I tried. I said, All right. What is this? Aikido. He's known as Aikido. I said, oh, what is that? He said, well, we don't, we don't teach that either. So <laughs> now I'm looking around for Alan Funt and the camera. And, uh, you know, that, that whole, it was like, all right, I just walked into a bad joke here. There was one more one more word on the window. And, I again, I did the best I could. K-A-R-A-T-E. Come on, karate. What is karate? Logical to me. That's right. So, well... Uh, that's karate, and it took me another couple of minutes to roll the R. My Irish tongue had never done that before, and uh, and I finally got karate. Okay, what is that? That's what we teach. What is it? Well, it's a striking art. It's this. It's that. Oh, 
Um, hmm. See, I had envisioned myself throwing somebody about your size through a plate glass window with judo. I mean, that's that well, that's was when the Bond movies came out. So you know, that's that's impressive. I mean, just just hitting somebody. I've been hitting people all my life, so that didn't that didn't impress me a whole lot. You know, it's boxing and so yeah, all right. But then we went into the into the studio and um, he, he showed me some stuff with this other guy, and I should have realized at the time. And it actually took me years to realize. Somebody that knows even a little bit more than you about something that you know nothing about can impress the hell out of you. They can just blow you away. And I thought this, I, I said to myself, whoa. I mean, I would not want to meet this kid when he was, you know, on the wrong side of, of liking me. And, uh, and I, come on, I, I was not some wide-eyed 17 or 16-year-old kid. I mean, I'd been in the Marine Corps. I'd known some killers. I mean, downright honest to God, people that, you know, killed people. And um, real rough people. I'd grown up in the streets of Chicago. So I knew what, what fighting was all about. And, um, and this kid really impressed me. And come, come to find out later on, he wasn't really very good at all. And he dropped out a few months after I started. So he never got very far. But he, he did his job that night. And so I said, well, can I come by and watch a class? I said, sure, of course. And I came by, and, uh, and the next class I saw was Mr. Ed Parker. And when Ed moved, he was, Ed Parker was 27 years old at the time. I was 27 years old at the time. Yeah, you guys were like nine months apart, if I remember correctly. Where I was born in November, getting ready, I was get, just turned 27, and he was born in March, he was getting ready to turn 28 in March, and this is in February. So, you know, uh, yeah, we we're, were about 10 months apart. Yeah. And... Um, so it was it was funny because he had this this fatherly demeanor. Uh, everybody looked upon upon him as a mentor and so on. And uh, I looked upon him as as a guy that knew a heck of a lot more than I did about something. And I, I really wanted to learn that. But because we were practically the same age, we were contemporaries more than you know more than uh, this this. Uh, like a father figure. Right, it wasn't the old Wizen master at that point. No, no, well, same age. a couple of guys the same age, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, looking back at it now, we were still kids. <laughs> at 27 years old, come on, you're just getting you're just getting around to getting formed. And it took me it took me 45 years to reach the age of 21. I mean, I just I was not, I was sort of develop, developmentally whatever challenged. Anyway, um, so that was my introduction. And, uh, and then the, the school there only lasted a few months. He had bought the school from a, um, an Aikido instructor who was a sergeant in the Air Force. And wherever he would go, he'd start a school. And then if, if possible, he would leave the school in the, um, uh, in the care of the, his most senior student or students. Well, he didn't, have, he didn't have time enough to develop these students yet. So uh, when, he, when he was getting ready to get transferred, which I guess was a little earlier than he expected, or anticipated, uh, he started looking for somebody to buy it. And he found Ed Parker and, and took a look at it, I guess, and, and said yes, because that's what it was at the time. I understand uh, from later on that he, he did a demonstration and retained all of the guy's students. Hmm. So, again, Ed could impress, oh my God. I mean, he, when he moved, he transferred his power through the floor into the walls and, and the building kind of reverberated and that's saying something considering those were probably tatami mats at the time too they were tatami mats yeah that's no really saying something mm, no <clears throat> they weren't tatami they were tatami up in uh pasadena and then later we inherited those oh that's a funny story 
Oh, you got to tell it then. When, when, when we inherited those mats, uh, I had a friend that had a, a little like a, a, a little pickup, like a, a pinto pickup type, or something like that. And and we put these mats. They are heavy. Yeah. I mean, they are. <laughs> so we stacked them up, and uh, on the on the bed of his truck, and they fit very nicely. We stacked them up, and and we're gonna drive from Pasadena to South Central LA. <laughs> And, and we're driving down, we're driving on Walnut Avenue, going to the freeway. And all of a sudden, my friend tells me, Chuck, I don't think we can do this. I said, why not? He says, the front wheels aren't on the ground. <laughs> the, the truck had tilted and the wheels, he says, I'm not steering. And I said, well, whoa, whoa. We put on the braces and we, we, we got back to the student. I said, somebody's got to come off. So I said, but we still need to get in there. So we took them out of the bag and put them on the, on the cab of the truck. Nice. Yeah, so but as soon as we balance going on. Yeah, but but as soon as we got three of them from convex to concave, the, the truck top went pop, and we looked up and the thing was coming towards us. And he says, "This ain't gonna work either, son." Right, you're right. And we took them off. And um, a guy by the name of Jerry Poutine. I don't know mm-hmm. if you, you you know who Jerry is, right? Yep. Was he's passed on now, but uh, he, great guy. And he was there in the dojo that night. And he says, "You guys need a hand." As well, if we need to get these bats on a Crenshaw Boulevard and, and between Slauson and, and, and he knew where it was, and he says, uh, I'll, I'll take him, I'll help you. And he had a pickup truck, and we threw half of them on there, and, uh, and we caravaned down there. And I told him, I said, it's a long ways down there. He said, not to worry, I got it covered. Nice. Very nice, very nice, yes. Uh, I've, I've appreciated that uh, ever since. And Jerry became uh, quite the uh Kondo practitioner under Bruce. Yeah, he was Vic's, uh, Vic's instructor for GK. And GK Doe, he's one of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. He and... Um, Bustillo? Richard Bustillo? Rich, Richard Bustillo, right. Uh, anyway, so that was just... Uh, I Every time I think about those mats and that, uh, that we inherited, I, I think about that. Nice. Because what we had at the time was like these these uh, 18-inch square grass mats all sewn together. And then on, because they were rougher, you know, rougher than a cob, you couldn't jump around those on your bare feet. So then we had bought painter's tarps, canvas, and we stretched those across across the grass mats. And the grass mats were almost as hard as the floor. Yeah. And you couldn't really do much of the way of takedowns. Although in those days, we did takedowns on, on hardwood floors and concrete. We really, you know, you just, you just you kind of bounce a little bit and uh, you hop back up and uh, no, no harm, no foul. The things you do when you're young. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The foolishness. Uh, the, the word makawari. Oh, yeah. Springs to mind. Striking it, dummy. Yeah. It, striking dummy. Yeah. A post in the ground with burlap had, that had been wrapped around it nice and thick that had now worn down to back to the back to the original board. Uh, yeah, you'd hit that thing and spring back on you. And I realized after about a couple of months, I was never going to be able to form calluses on my knuckles. Mm-hmm. Never. I mean, they just weren't going to do it. Some guys did and some guys didn't. And mine just weren't going to do it. And of course, they kept telling them, oh, your hands going to be arthritic later on in life. I said, who cares? Well, now, <laughs> now I care. Now I can't make a fist with my right hand any longer because the middle finger sticks out. Uh, now I have diminished circulation in my legs, but uh, that wasn't from, from karate. That was from smoking cigarettes. Mm. That's what I understand, yeah. Or maybe the guy just maybe just told me that to make me feel bad. I don't know. <laughs> 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 na, 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 na. <laughs> We told you not to do that. Anyway, uh, where were we? We were 
we're just getting started. 27 years old, just getting started. And anyhow, like I said, the uh, the studio only lasted there for another few months. And then uh, you, you can't run a business four days a week, three hours a day. Hmm. It, it can't be done. Somebody's got to be there, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just whatever. If those guys hadn't been there, I don't know if I'd have gotten back there to check it out when they were there. I might have come back another time or so when they weren't. They wouldn't have been there, and I'd have never been in the yard. Mm-hmm. At least at that time, uh, until maybe it became more popularized and be a whole different ball of game, you know, ball of wax and different different game altogether. But uh, it's funny too because I was thinking just the other day, everybody is into everything now, mm-hmm. and uh, my whole my whole expertise is is strictly Kempo. because first of all. I didn't have time for anything else, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to just go and get a bit of this and a piece of that and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other and so on. Although we did mess around with uh, with jujitsu when it first became popularized, and we all got hurt. We yeah, all so got injured. Not a uh, easy sport to pick up and play every now and then. You kind of have to do that one regularly. That's right, and you got to be young. You re- you don't get into that when you're in your sixties. <laughs> I think Howard. No, Howard tried, but he was he was doing Krav Maga. Same problem though. Same thing. You can get into that later on. Right, if, you know. right. So, anyway, because I had a, and even, even that, I mean, as far as, uh, as far as the, uh, the art karate is concerned, um, I had the availability to study with anyone I wanted to throughout the years. I mean, I could have gone to anybody and would have been accepted in their, into their school with, with open arms. I knew all these guys and uh, everybody knew everybody. And I could and I never felt the need. I just never felt the need. For any other style or system, I mean, I've seen them all. I know what they are. The beauty of it is that when you get to a certain level in the art, you don't need to be taught anymore because you can analyze it yourself. That's another whole story right there. That how that how that comes about, or it came about for me. I don't know if, if other people have an epiphany or if it just it's just, you know it's like water; it just rises up until finally they get it. And, and I don't even know if, if a lot of people realize they got it when they have it. I didn't really. And it took a, a specific thing for me. And that, of course, was, that's my Bruce Lee story. Because people ask, you know, they'll say, who was the most influential person in your experience in the art? Well, that, of course, would be Ed Parker, obviously. That, that would be nobody but Ed Parker. But along came Bruce. And uh, the night I met Bruce Lee, uh, I've told this story. In fact, matter of fact, I did a video on it because I think it's just a, it's a, it's a little tribute to him. And, uh, and I just enjoyed so much uh, what happened. And it was, it's, it's, it's unique. Um, Ed Parker was, uh, was so uh, renowned in the art at that time. And, and Bruce was literally nowhere here in the United States. And somebody told me, if you want to get into the uh, film industry, you go talk to Ed Parker because he's got the contacts and so on and so forth. And he liked Bruce. And, and um, he brought him down to the, to the studio one night and he was teaching the class. And Bruce was just out among the people watching. Nobody paid any attention to him as we never did anybody watching. Unless there was a good-looking young lady, you might, you know, <laughs> otherwise, who cared? So... Uh, at the end of the class, we, we all got dressed and we're walking across the mats with our shoes in our hands and our coats and whatever. And, uh, and Ed walked out with, with Bruce and he says, I want to introduce this, uh, this guy to you. He says, he's a real hot young Chinese martial artist. 
and uh, and then this Bruce Lee and he introduced us and we all shook hands and about that time somebody called into the phone or whatever and so we're just getting ready to move and then Bruce started up a conversation I mean he was he was really good at that he could take over a conversation in a heartbeat you'd be talking about something totally different he'd walk in and change the whole subject and he could just do that and uh, he's, he's, he's quite a character really and uh, anyway he he uh, he was telling us about it just coming back from Hong Kong. Well, boys, our, our ears pricked up immediately. Hong Kong, the mecca of, uh, of Kung Fu. And um, so we asked him, he said, well, you know, what's it like over there? And uh, these are his words, because uh, I remember him distinctly. He says, well, 95% of what they do is commercial bullshit. And and I kind of, woo. <laughs> I thought, that's a, that's a kind of a rough statement. That's a bold 95%. one at that time, yeah. I'm like, oh, I, really? And now I'm beginning to wonder if he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> because it's like, oh, come on. And then he says, uh, of the other 5%, I won't try to imitate him. <laughs> Anyhow, he had this slight speech impediment and then a little bit of an accent. But he said, as of the other uh, twenty, or the other 5%, he said half of those are trying, but they don't know what they're doing. Now I'm thinking, that leaves 2.5%. <laughs> that's kind of low. That's, that's ridiculous and low. So... I said, uh, actually, we were all kind of, uh, kind of wow. And we, somebody or one of us said, well, wh- what are those guys like? And he said, oh, those guys are the real deal. But they're not a school. Hmm. They are cl- they're more of a club, yeah. uh, more of a society. They're more of, they're more of a tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> yeah, right. He says, you guys couldn't even get down the alley where they work out. If you weren't Chinese, he says you couldn't even you couldn't even you would you wouldn't even go there. So we kind of got an idea of what was going on. Then he dropped the bomb, and he said, "By the way, I was watching what you were doing earlier, and you did this." And he showed us, and he looked like he had been in the class forever. I mean, he did what we were doing perfectly. And he said, "Why were you doing that?" And I remember thinking, because Ed Parker was teaching us, what do you mean, why were we doing it? You know why we were doing that. We didn't just do it on our own. And somebody said something about why or whatever. He says, oh, I was just wondering because it was wrong. And that's when uh, I remember, I think Dave Hebler got about three inches taller and looked at me like, you want him or should I take him? And I'm like, no, <laughs> let's hear what he has to say first, you know, before we before we go mopping up the mats with anybody. And uh, and we said, so what do you mean wrong? And um, he showed us what we were doing and why it was really not good, not good at all. And I remember thinking at the time, huh, the kid's right. And I say the kid. He's nine years younger than I went than I am. So when I was thirty-one, he was like, all right, I see. All right, he was twenty-one when I was thirty. Yep. Yeah. So right, and this was right about the time I was thirty, um, because I was just uh, a brand new black belt, and uh, I think Dave was still a brown belt at the time when when uh, we met. And anyway, um, yeah. So he he laid that on us, and uh, the thing that the thing that he 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 picked out was not something that would destroy my faith in the system. Now I'd say, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I doing with this? But I realized a, a, a number of things at that 
not at the moment, not at the moment. But I realize that, first of all, I realize he's right. And, uh, and I can, you right now, and, and for probably the last several years, you could walk into anybody's dojo in the world and sit there and watch him long enough and say, that's, that's bad. Because mm-hmm. not everybody's teaching everything that's primo. I mean, sometimes you're teaching it for a reason. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's no reason, and it's just plain bad, and, and it's, it's tradition. Yeah, you've been, you've been teaching. sometimes the, even then the tradition gets passed down, and somebody, it's like the telephone game. That's right. They get, you know, the first guy had it, and it was great. The second guy had it, it was great. By the time the second guy passed it to the third guy, something got lost in translation. Oh, that happens all the time, so, too. Yeah. Sure. Right. That'll happen within schools. I mean, but I'm talking like from the source, from right. Ed, you know, and, but again, where did he learn it? He didn't, he didn't, you know, he learned it from someone also. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I'm fond of saying all the time, uh, this stuff didn't come off the mountain on tablets. I, I just watched the there Masters no Magazine uh, interview you did. Where they, I was waiting for that quote. So. Yeah, there was no burning bush. You know, <laughs> somebody made this stuff up. Somebody created it. And that somebody in Kempo was Ed Parker. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, the guy, he's the guy. So I, was, I remember driving home that night and saying to myself, how come the kid could do that? And I can't. And I was, I was getting, like, irritated with myself. I don't understand that. I mean, this kid picked that up so quickly. Well, yes, he did. He did. I mean, it took him an hour of a class to sit there and watch it, and he picked one thing out. Big deal. But all of a sudden, I said to myself, how do you know you can't do that? You've never tried. I never tried. Why didn't I try? Because I thought everything that Ed Parker was teaching us, I took as gospel. I took it 100% at face value. Well, I got to tell you, Everything changed that night while I was driving home. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I didn't. And from then on, I started analyzing what I was being taught. And there were some things that I summarily just threw out myself. I just, I just said, you know, that's not any good. And I don't care who says it is. Mm-hmm. Because I can, I can figure this out for myself. I'm a black belt now. Uh, I'm not as good a black belt as Ed Parker by any means. But I get it. Now I get it. And so, and it actually, that carried over uh, under my personal life as well. I just don't take everything anybody says as, you know, just take it uh, blindly. I'll take it under advisement and I'll think about it. If it's important, I'll think about it a lot. If it isn't, who cares? I don't think about it a little bit and I, I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't impact my life. I'll, I'll let it go. But uh, as far as the art's concerned, uh, oh, Oh, I, we, Ed and I used to have some great discussions. I won't call them arguments, but I'll, I'll <laughs> he had one point of view. I had another, and uh, we had a. We, oh, there was times. I think one of my one of my favorites is uh, I forget the name of the technique that we call it cl- clashing hammers. Thundering hammers. Thundering hammers. All right, and thundering hammers. You come out with two back, uh, two uh, uh, hammer fists using the underside of your hand. Well, your arm doesn't bend that way to get to the groin. Mm-hmm. That's why we turned it over in uh, Clashing Hammers, and you can, you can go completely up the back end if you want because it guidelines and, and it, it, for, it fits, it molds, it does everything. Mm-hmm. Everything the other one doesn't do. So we're, we're, we're talking about that from West L.A. We're driving from West L.A. to Pasadena, which isn't exactly around the corner. 
especially at that point in time with the road development that was there. That's right. You weren't necessarily all, oh, when I had to go from uh, Southgate when the, when the school closed, I had to drive 26 miles to Pasadena every night after getting off work and having dinner because the class didn't start till 9, 9 p.m., which was good for me. And But, uh, yeah, on surface streets. Yeah, no direct highway at that point. It was the freeway would take you out of your way. I mean, there was freeway, but it would take you so far out of your way that you're better off on surface streets. So, yeah. Um, anyhow, we were, we were driving from West L.A. to uh, Pasadena, and uh, we're, we're talking about this. And it's hard when you're sitting and somebody's driving and you're trying to show movement. So we got when we got to Pasadena, we got out of the car. I put him in a headlock. I said, do your thing. And, and he says, well, at one point he says to me, he says, uh, no, what you don't understand, Chuck, is what you do with the leg first. And I said, no, Ed, what you don't understand is you're the only one that can do that. I said, you watch these guys running the line. Nobody does that. You've taught it that way, but nobody does it. They get immediately into the move. They don't do that first. And as a, as a result, their arm doesn't bend that way, and it, and it doesn't work. And uh, so, again, we grabbed him in a headlock. He put me in a headlock, so on and so forth. And I said, you could, I said, you can do it this way. I said, you can do it this way. I said, but the rest of us have a tough time. I said, Ed, why not just make it so much easier and so much sure, mm-hmm. so much more positive? You're going to get there. And I remember his exact words. He says, you're right. I'm going to change it. And he never did. And he never did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he forgot <laughs> or if he just just... Didn't want to say, uh, by the way, uh, I found a better way. Boy, when I find a better way, I'm the first one to jump on it. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that since I started with the IKC. There's, it didn't matter whose idea it came up with. If there's something better, you're going, wait a minute, we got to analyze this. Let's take a look at it. Let's see if we need to make it happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to do that. Because otherwise, I mean, what's the point? Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many... Um, so many traditional styles that are still stuck in that facet, but there's so many non-traditional styles in the same capacity. They, they, somebody comes up with something better, and rather than propagate that and give it to other people as an option, it winds up becoming an offshoot. And this guy just teaches his own version of it, and nobody else does the same thing. Right. Versus let's give it to our people as an option or as something we figured out that works better, and that way the whole lineage gets improved. Right. I never understood the logic behind that. It was, it was such a uh, really cool breath of fresh air when I found that with IKCA. Yeah. Thank you for that. We will. Oh well. Thank everybody who's who's analyzed it. I tell you, people have plumbed the depths of this system. I mean, we we knew it was good, but we didn't know it was this good, really. I mean, people have plumbed the depths of it and come up with stuff. Uh, some of the borrowing, blending, and combining, and things of that sort. Oh wow. I mean, stuff that when when we when we would see it, we go. How come we didn't think of that? <laughs> this is great. Again, why didn't we think of? Because we're got pretty complacent and comfortable in what we had. These other people are like, oh, this is, wow, this is mysterious. You know, now they're going to, they're going to really get into it and take it apart, really tear it apart and put it back together. What a, what a, what a great uh, development. And you get to see all of them when they do their black belt test. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. I think we're still one of the only organizations that all of the black belt still has to go through headquarters. I would say we're probably the only I, don't, I know there's a couple of them in the traditional side. I don't know how many in like the, the Kempo world do that, but I know there's a couple in the traditional side where they have the same kind of concept. Right. Well, that, of course, is uh, it's a must-be, really, because otherwise, again, telephone, the old telephone game. Mm-hmm. You know, by three generations, uh, it's not the same system. And by six, it doesn't even resemble the same system. Right. 
I think you told a story about Ed Parker seeing that, and the only thing he recognized when he went to a test was the names of the techniques or something. That that hurt. I, I gotta tell you, that hurt me to hear that. It really did. It, that hurt me. Uh, what a statement. I sit on these boards, I watch the tests, and the only thing I recognize is the names of the techniques. My God. That's horrible. I mean, what a sinking feeling he must have had. And then, of course, he had to promote these people. Mm -hmm. In his system, in the name of his system, but they weren't doing it. Right. Oh, terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. But there was no video at that time. There was no way that uh, that everybody could come through headquarters unless he went to them or they came to him, and we're talking worldwide. Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult logistics equation. It's a, it's an impossible one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not not just difficult; it's impossible. He just came along along at the right and the wrong time, the right time because he was the pioneer. He was the father of American karate because he started the first commercial dojo on the mainland, because at that time in 1957, uh, Hawaii was not yet a state. Mm-hmm. So he, he started the first commercial karate school in America. Hawaii was still Hawaii, like Puerto Rico is still Puerto Rico. So um, he has that distinction, and nobody can, can dispute that. Nobody tries. So, But it wasn't long after that that it just, you know, it went bada-bing, bada-boom, and so on. Mm-hmm. I think I told you that when I first started, I signed a little contract with him. We mentioned that one time, but let's talk about it a little further. What was the contract? The contract was, and everybody signed this in, in, the, in the beginning. Um, the contract was that you would teach no one except your immediate family. That's a very traditional Chinese contract. Mm-hmm. So I felt I was joining like a secret society. Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, and he interviewed you. Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to, why do you want to take this art? And for me, it was easy. I'm in terrible physical condition. I haven't done anything since I got out of the Marine Corps. I've been, you know, working and so on, but I mean, nothing really working out physical. I, I, I never could understand the idea of lifting. I, I just, that was not uh, an option for me at all, going to a gym. I, in fact, in those days, what was a gym? It was Vic Tanny's, and uh, they had a few dumbbells around, and, and not all of them metal. Uh, <laughs> Concrete and rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, I just I just couldn't get into that idea at all. And when I saw this, I said, well, I said, to me, this is like, first of all, it, I'm going to get in, in good physical addiction because I've seen your workout. Mm-hmm. These guys are standing in a puddle of their own sweat. That impressed me. I said, I got to do that because I haven't done that since, since I was a Marine. Uh, and I said, secondly, I said, what you're teaching here to me is like, an insurance policy. You buy it because you, you know you need it and you hope you never need it. But you need you gotta have it. Yeah, it's better to have it and not oh, need it than need absolutely. it and not have it. Absolutely. And and that's that's what the art is to be. And how many fights have I been in since since I've been in the art? Only only in tournaments. <laughs> Every now and then you find some fool that's really fighting, so you gotta fight back. But if they're doing it right now, it's still freestyle. If they're not then you're fighting, and I've I've done I've been there already. And one time a guy hit me in the face and I busted his ribs. Huh? And he came back to me later and he's holding his side. He says, "Good match." I said, "It was a terrible match. You're out there to take my head off." Oh, he said, "Yeah." 
<laughs> I could tell the difference. You know, I got a, I got a cheek that's swelling up and an eye closing. I don't think you were pulling those, boss. No, I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> no, I know you weren't. No, there was no, there was no control in some of these. In the first internationals, I remember standing next to Ed Parker when the doctor walked across the uh, across the the hall. This was in the uh, in the oh, what they call it. No, it wasn't the sports arena. Before that, the municipal auditorium. It was the municipal, the old one. There's, there's a new municipal auditorium, but this is this is something old. The old one was just a, a an amphitheater. You know, I mean, a, a, a balcony floor, and they could put in risers and and so and uh, seating. And uh, the, the guy walked across. I, I just had to be standing next to Ed, and he walks up and he says, "Mr. Porter, you got to do something about the control here." He says, "I just counted eight knockouts walking across the floor." And this is on, on hardwood floors. So when, and when these guys went down, yeah, it's a double knockout. It's a double knockout. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm 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 amazed that uh, that nobody was has been killed. Well, especially with uh, especially all the the modern science where they're looking at all the concussion syndromes and all the stuff that's right, happening right. with that. Yeah. yeah, I remember a, a match. Gavin uh, Scott Loring, one of our guys, big, rough, tough kid. Uh, <laughs> I remember when he was when he was brand new. He was just a white belt, and uh, and I was teaching. And I had uh, I used to do this thing where I, I wanted to use hands only or feet only, and I would tie their belts together so that they only had a half a belt length between them and use hands only. And you got to you got to you got to learn how to block because mm-hmm. you're in such close proximity. It was easy to it was easy not to be able to to control it. And then we used to uh, we'd take and put our hands behind our belts, tuck them in, and use our feet only. Mm. And, and the other guy could use his hands, so you could only use your feet. And uh, just as an exercise, and, and we, we didn't do this all the time, but I did it enough. And I remember the night that, uh, that Scott Loring was, was doing it, and, uh, and he kept coming in on these guys, and I, and I kept trying to tell him, you have to acknowledge what they're doing. When they kick you in the groin, you've been kicked in the groin. Just the fact that they didn't actually make contact, you have to acknowledge that. You know, act as though you have been. So I, I tried it with my hands there, and he, and, he got it, and he finally picks me up, and he's going to slam me down. And that's what I, I grabbed him, and I clapped his ears, and, and, uh, and I hit him a couple of times. And he, he dropped me, and he says, oh, I thought you couldn't use your hands. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, you're about to dump me on my head. Believe me, my hands are coming out. And, I, and that's, that's what I told him. I said, Scott, I've just kicked you in the groin three times. And I said, had I just let him go, I said, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. And, and oh, Oh, I get, but he was just that. Well, I tell you, I, I don't know if this is the first or the second. It was right early on, but or very early on, because the internationals didn't really get sorted out for a few years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. The, it wasn't. I mean, the first year was a fiasco. The second year was as bad as the first year, really, but maybe just a little more controlled. Uh, and by the third year, it was beginning to look a little bit like a tournament rather than a, than a, a brouhaha free for all. And um, anyhow, it was, it was one of those years. <clears throat> Scott was in a match, and I, I won't mention the other guy's name because it isn't important. But he was, he was quite well known at the time. And the guy drove him out of bounds, Scott out of bounds, and they yelled, stop. The, the referee and, and judges stop. And Scott did. He dropped his hands, and the guy hit him in the face. Well, he didn't say a word. Came back in the ring, got in a spot, and when they said, Hajime, 
Loring launched. I mean, he was in a sprint mode at the time. And before this other guy could put his hands up, he nailed him in the chest. I mean, absolutely dead in the chest. The guy went down and started flipping around like a fish out of water. Oof. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the doctor came along, and as I recall, he gave him a shot in the chest, in the heart. Like an adrenaline shot? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, wow. Which I'm sure saved his life. Yeah, that's, that's uh, not was, good. You got to get to that level. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> and I remember Scott just uh, just walked back, bowed, and left. I mean, <laughs> he didn't wait for him to say, you're out. I saw the same thing happen with Joe Lewis one time. Oof. Uh, three of us were standing up on the risers. They, they were using the risers at this time, but not for the eliminations. And Lewis was fighting, and uh, and one of one of the guys said, I wonder what's going on over there, because some guy was in, had his finger and his point right in Lewis's face. And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, that's said, not going to go good. <laughs> I said, he's, he's trying to tell him how it is. And I said, this is not good. And, and so they came back, and they bowed, and the guy was aggressive. He, he moved right in on Lewis, and Lewis was backing up, backing up, backing up. And I thought, that's unusual. Lewis just usually was the aggressor, but he was backing up, backing up, backing up. And man, all of a sudden, he launched with that. Infamous back fist of his, the guy backed up, and he, he did a side thrust kick that took the guy. It, he took out three rows of seats, spectators and all, but there wasn't many spectators, fortunately. Uh, There's only a couple of people that were involved. Uh, and uh, and then they went over to attend him. And I remember Joe walking back, taking his spot, bowing and leaving. <laughs> same, <laughs> same thing, same thing. No words, no nothing. He was just, no, no, no. You didn't, you didn't do that with Joe. <laughs> I know I'm getting DQ'd for that, so I'm just going to take off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so since we're in that time period, uh, I had I cheated. I had a few people who uh, knew that I was going to come do this interview, gave me some questions. Uh huh. So since we're in that time period, here's a good one. So how did you go from training with Ed Parker to co-owning the only partnership-owned school in IKKA history? Okay, well, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Now you, now you over, you over the can of worms. <laughs> I like worms. Well, no, that all happened because uh, at the time uh, I was a brown belt. I was, you know, a face in the crowd. I was uh, one of the advanced class, and there were there were many of us, and um, there were three black belts: Rich Montgomery. Jimmy Brown and uh, Rick Flores. Those are the only three black belts that, that Ed had uh, had made at that time. And then came along a guy by the name of James Wing Wu. And Ed had found him in San Francisco, got acquainted with him, and, and he was a, a Kung Fu practitioner. And Ed was writing his second book, The Secrets of Chinese Karate, which was pretty much along the lines of Kung Fu. So. Uh, he's, he asked Jimmy how, if he would like to collaborate with him on the book. So they began, they began collaborating on the book. Ed already had a, a real good start on the book. I mean, he had been, he'd been working on it for some time. And uh, Jimmy Wu came along, and, and I don't know what his contribution was, how much or whatever, but within uh, a few, couple of months, really, um, Ed Parker was building his dynasty at that time. I mean, he was... He was a, I, I have to say, he was the hardest working man I've ever known. He really was. Uh, Ed was Ed was going, I don't know how much sleep he got, but it, it couldn't have been a whole lot because I'd worked with him later on. I, I'd worked him into the wee hours, and I'd be driving home. 
And uh, I, but I knew the next night I was going to get a good night's sleep. I'm not sure he did. Really, I mean, every night was was he worked into the into the wee hours, and uh, he'd be up again the next morning. He was, he'd beat himself coming and going. He was just he was all over the place all the time. <clears throat> well, at this particular time with uh, with Jimmy Woo, he uh, he made a fatal mistake. He turned his advanced class over to Jimmy whenever he couldn't, whenever he found that he was too far away, he couldn't make it on time or whatever. And and he gave him a little latitude, he gave him a little breathing room. He should never have done it because Jimmy Wu had an agenda of his own. And it was very, very clear, very quickly. Uh, he started selling the, the guys, being their instructor. Um, you know, they were listening to him. And uh, he started planting the seeds. Um, Ed Parker isn't moving fast enough with uh, taking over the country with schools and so on and so forth. We could do a much better job. Um, Ed Parker has taught you everything he knows, so why would you continue with him when I can teach you the good stuff, the secrets, the things you don't know? Um, it's kind of funny, too, because at the time, I didn't like that. I, I didn't like some of the talk that was going on. And um, I actually, for a while, was only going one night a week to the class. The other night, I was studying fencing. Just because it was, it was fun, it was different, and so on. And like I said, I just, the guys that go out afterwards, I wouldn't go out. I just, I'd go home. Uh, and then one night, I walked into the studio, and there's nobody there. And whoever was there, a couple of guys, one of them says to me, what are you doing here? <laughs> I, uh... I came to work out. I came to the class. Oh, boy, oh, boy, it happened, huh? Something's happened here. Oh, yeah, didn't you hear? You don't know about it? I said, no, because I was kind of out of the loop at that particular time. I wasn't as tight as I had been. And uh, I said, okay, I get it. I mean, I knew immediately what, what had happened. And uh, so I called in the next day, and I said, uh, you know, where, where, where do we go from here? He says, you're, you're, you're with me? I said, Absolutely. And uh, the three guys came down. Jimmy, a uh, guy by the name of Leonard Myers, and I forget who the third guy was, came down to the uh, to my shop, and uh, and they said, uh, you know, you're you're part of this group. And I said, yeah. And they said, you're you're welcome with us. And I said, I realize that. I said, but uh, thanks anyway. I said, oh, okay. There's no pressure. I mean, isn't you know, they didn't come down and uh, say, you know, you got to come with us. And they, no, and it wasn't like that. And uh, Boy, what a mistake those guys made. Really, what a mistake. Because I never heard of any of them after that. I mean, nobody did anything. Nobody amounted to anything in, in, in the world of martial arts or at all, to my knowledge. I never, never heard about any of them. Nothing happened with them at all. So at that point, uh, ta-da. It's <laughs> fantastic. I was able to teach. Up until that point, I had maybe taken over a class when... Ed Parker would go into the office or something like that at the end of a class. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and Rich Montgomery didn't happen to be there for some reason, and neither did Jimmy Abra. And it, it kind of went down the line, and I might get chosen to, to come out and do a little bit of stuff, but I've never really done any teaching. And then Ed uh, said to me, you know, uh, can, can you come in and, and start teaching? I said, absolutely. And I thought, what the hell am I going to teach? I don't, oh, my God, this is... 
oh, wow. So, I mean, I started developing a plan right away. And I I knew who the guys were because basically what happened was the intermediate class became the advanced class, Mm -hmm. you know. And then uh, then we started started making brown belts and so on and so forth. and, And they became a legitimate advanced class. But it took a while. But in the meantime, they were still called the advanced class. And um, and then, like I said, I had I had the man's ear. And and one of the first things I said was, you know, I love your books. They're great. But the thing about Kempo, you got to see it move. Mm-hmm. You got to see it move. Pictures, photographs, uh, verbal descriptions don't do anything. It's too static. Absolutely. And, and the dynamics, the kinetic... Uh, dynamics that we have going for us are, are just so impressive. So I said, let's make some films. So we got a hold. Ed had a 16 millimeter camera because Ed would trade anything for lessons. Anything. I mean, you want to barter? He, Leilani told my wife one time, she says, we have a basement full of junk. <laughs> she said that Ed has bartered for stuff we'll probably never use, but he'll take anything you got. And, uh, you know, dental work, whatever. And, uh, and he was, oh, he was great on bartering. And he had this 16-millimeter camera, this big wind-up thing. But, I mean, this was the kind of, of a camera when you wound it up, you could shoot for, for quite a long time. 16-millimeter was getting to be a, a professional medium. In fact, when we did the movie uh, um, The Killing Zone, with PM Entertainment, that was the last of their 16 millimeter productions. After that, they went to 35 millimeter. Hmm. But uh, I tell you, you look at that movie, uh, in I mean, uh, The Killing Zone, and uh, man, it looks like it looks like it was shot on 35. It's it's good. The the production value of this the story kind of sucks, but the the production value, <laughs> the acting is real great either. But anyhow, we did the best we could. It's it's, it's a fun little movie. But uh, but as far as the production value is concerned, I mean the, the stuff really looks good. So sixteen millimeters getting going to be quite a thing. Eight millimeters getting to be really good. Super eight was sound, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden came video, and super eight was forgotten. Yeah, that was going to get to be a real good medium for people that wanted to have uh, sound, but that didn't happen. And of course, video was terrible for the first umpteen years. Ed Parker and I had one of the first video uh, out, recording outfits uh, available through Sony, the CV2000. It was a big walnut cabinet. It had a nine-inch pop-up black and white little little monitor, and it had reel-to-reel mm. videotape, uh, one hour, and they were about uh, over nine-inch nine-inch reels, and they cost seventy-five bucks a piece. In 1961. In 1961, 62. Yeah, this Ooh. was probably about yeah mid 60s, about 60. 465 anyway yeah a lot of money in those days uh, so yeah. you used it until it just you couldn't repair it anymore and you threw it away and got another you know you broke down and spent another 75 bucks for another real estate <clears throat> of a couple of which i have i still got them and i would love to be able to see them except there's nothing to watch them on mm-hmm. in fact uh <clears throat> at one point it had been several years and um uh i hadn't seen some of the stuff i have and i realized uh tom bleaker was talking about a, uh, a video outfit that Bruce Lee had. Thank you. And he said, uh, he told me what it was, and I said, you know what? I said, that's the same one I had, only he had the industrial model, I had the, like the home model. I said, could I borrow that? And I did. And in those days, uh, just because you had the same unit didn't necessarily mean you could watch your tapes. They were so, uh, oh, God, what? Credit, uh, <laughs> I Proprietary. Proprietary, yeah. That uh, even though you recorded on the same outfit, 
that didn't necessarily mean it was going to play on somebody else's, even the same model and make and everything else. But it did, and uh, that was that was nice too. But back to Jimmy Woo. Um, <clears throat> oh no, we got we got finished with him, and uh, now we're off onto uh, the the movies. So we made these eight millimeter films, and uh, we sold them worldwide for a while. And what curious about that was we had. I believe we started with a full page ad in Black Belt Magazine. And it was it was uh, pretty reasonable until Black Belt developed and created their own films. Mm. We were the first. We were the first ones out there with, with training films, silent films. You, we gave descriptions and so on. And we did, again, the best we could without sound. But without sound, you're, you're so limited. And, uh, and, and uh, even through the amount, I mean, the amount that you could shoot, um, just so limited, but we we give it a shot, and and I'm glad we did because those films are still kicking around. Mm-hmm. They're on the internet, and they show it. They show Kempo at its roots. Yeah, we've got it up on the IKCA website right now for free. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want to watch it there, like you said, on the IKCA website for free, and uh, and they show Ed and I, uh, and Ed was was. I don't know if it was generosity. Uh, or if it was, if it was, I don't know what it was, but I mean, he had me doing half and he was doing half and we were dummy for each other. I was willing to dummy all the way through. Oh, here's, here's a good one. Uh, when I came up with the proposal because of who he was and who I was at the time, everything and nothing really, you know, uh, I said to him, I said, uh, <clears throat> I want to make these films and so on. I said, you're going to be, you know, the guy doing the, the most of the work and everything. And I, I said, so we'll do this on a, you know, a 60-40 proposition, if you feel that's fair. And he said, no. I thought, oh, I overstepped my bounds. Uh, he's thinking 25, 75, 70, 30, 80, 20, 90, 10. 95, 5. 95, 5, right. And who the hell are you? <laughs> you know? And uh, <laughs> I remember, and and he said, no, Chuck, he says, he says, got to be 50-50, otherwise he says, it's not going to work. And I thought, what a what a wise man, really. Because, you know, it, it, was, it was working. Of course, what I also didn't realize was, at the time, uh, he had no intention of laying out the syllabus. He says, you lay it out, you tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. And I thought, that's a lot of responsibility for me. Yeah, you know, I mean, he who better to do it than him? Well, he didn't have time. He was willing to do everything. He was willing to, you know, give this whole thing a shot, but he really didn't have the time to do it. He made the time, but he didn't have the time. He certainly didn't have the time to do all this extra work. So I, I was the one that had to do all all of that, and I I did it happily, and uh, that gave me a leg up on later on, and and later on, and later on, and so on until we got to the, to the Karate Connection, and uh, you know, laying it out was was something that I'd done before. So it's just another just another chapter in the book. Okay. So that's and then as far as the studio, that's where I made a mistake. I really did. I should not have created a studio. I should have stuck closer physically to Ed. Okay. Because when uh, what I wanted was, well, first of all, I wanted a shorter commute, because when I get off work at uh, Crenshaw and Slauson uh, in L.A., I had to drive either to West L.A. And then back to Southgate, or I had to drive to uh, Pasadena, and then back to Southgate, mm-hmm. uh, or to Southgate to Pasadena, and so on. So I thought, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a studio right here? And 
being that my business was talking to guys all day long. Yeah, clientele streaming. Oh, my God. I had, I had a built-in clientele. I mean, the first thing, you know, if the guy was anywhere within the age group that, that we catered to, I'd be talking uh, karate to him. Mm-hmm. And I, I filled up that dojo with, with uh, haircut customers. Yeah, that's an easy way to get people in. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it, and it worked, it worked brilliantly. So, uh, you know, my idea was to have a place cl- closer to uh, my shop and, and physically someplace I could uh, get off work, grab a bite, and get down down there and teach for three hours. Which is what happened, and uh, but I really should have stayed a lot closer to him because he was so close to the film industry, and I could have gotten a lot closer to that at that time, and that's where I should have been. Mm-hmm. I should really have been there, rather than uh, you know being a being a, an instructor at a studio, at a school. <clears throat> it was not a not a good move, uh, but it worked at the time, and I sure had a, a tremendous amount of fun. And the guys that I taught at that school, you still see on Dinner with Chuck today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've made friends out of that place. I would have made other friends, but I, I, I wouldn't give up the ones I've made. These guys are precious to me. So, was it a mistake? Yes, maybe, maybe. Was it a mistake? No, not really. It was, it was, it was great. Uh, we had some great times down there. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears went out of those mats. Both the tatami and the uh, oh that the, the ones that we spread across those those grass mats were terrible, that painter's uh, canvas. It was just you, you, there was no footing. In fact, we had to take a couple of Pepsi bottles, put your thumb on, and sprinkle the mats to make it wet so you get some footing before we freeze out. Yeah, yeah. Talk about makeshift. And then we finally got tatami. Whoopee! <laughs> that was a happy day. And everybody's those are great right until they get sweat on, and then they feel like concrete. Well, if they get wet, they they blow up like a balloon. Mm-hmm. They're, then they're no good at all. But uh, yeah, and and if they get used and, and compacted, yeah, they're they're just about as bad as the floor. Mm-hmm. So, but again, we used to do it on the floor. So what? <laughs> yeah, I, I came up in my very first style I ever studied. Uh, we had a gym floor, and it was uh, wood. And you know, there's times yeah. you hit that wood hard enough, you swear to God that that you see the nails pop up through the wood, <laughs> and the dust cloud hits up, and yeah. You know, of course, it doesn't happen that way, but you, you know, sometimes you hit hard enough that it really feels that way. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's always interesting. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I went back and did the double check on this one once I got the question, and uh, that is the only record I can find of there that was a partnership-owned school. Everybody else's was a franchise. Right. So that, that was kind of a cool little tidbit in history there. Right. Or not necessarily even franchise. A lot of people just kind of tithed. Yeah, they didn't really pay a, a franchise they fee. They were a membership. They were a membership whatever. school, and they and they give them like ten percent of what they're taking in or whatever to be that that membership school, right? Mm-hmm. So cool. Yep. Um, I when I was doing my my research and my homework here, uh, kind of coincidental with another question somebody else sent in, but uh, there was a interview you did with Masters Magazine where you said that you had gotten a chance to freestyle with Ed Parker several times, and I happen to know how much you enjoy freestyling. So tell us about what it was like to freestyle with Ed Parker. Scary. Scary. He's a big man. He's a big man, and he's a powerful man. I mean, you, his, his power was, was legendary, literally. And uh, you knew that if, uh, I mean, somebody my size, I'd get hit. Well, I had the advantage because I'd probably fly away. I wouldn't stand there long <laughs> enough to get hit so badly. I'd just, you know, take it and fly away. I'd just, I'd just get brushed off like a fly. Uh, the only thing that kept me alive was my, uh, my, my speed, my ability to uh, get in and get out. 
and but sometimes I get in and get <laughs> make a mistake, you know, timing is off or whatever. Uh, no, it was, uh, and and he was he was he was being nice, you know. I mean, he was he wasn't he wasn't pissed off. I mean, he was <laughs> anything. I mean, he was just we were just we were freestyling, and uh, and the man had he had excellent control. Until you were in a, a mass attack. And then, I tell you, one of the funny... I, I picked up a bruise one time from my knee to my upper thigh. And I know the man's foot isn't that long. I don't know how, how I bruised with one kick that far. Man, oh man, I, I thought I was going to be crippled for life. And it was at a demonstration. And uh, one time we were at a demonstration, and he was he was by Uki, and... Uh, and he afterwards he told me he says you almost dropped me. I got to want to check a, a, a chop behind the neck, doing thundering hammers, mm-hmm. or repeating hammers. And uh, yeah, my, my control was just a bit off. It didn't feel like anything to me though, really. Mm-hmm. I remember I remember make, making contact, but he told me so. He said I, I saw I, I spun and I saw the stars, and he said I just caught myself before I went down. <laughs> yeah, those, uh, those cervical neck strikes are really easy Ooh. to overdo it real quick. Really, yeah, it's so easy to just, uh, yeah, too much. Anyway, um, oh, yeah, uh, mass attacks. I think the funniest one I ever saw was Big John Walker, one of our guys, uh, was was like you wanted to be the first or the second guy in. You never wanted to be the third or the fourth, and God help you if there was five, and, <laughs> and you had to be the fifth guy in. Well, you know, sometimes, I mean, these things are all, uh, choreographed, they're programmed, but that usually goes away after the second guy, and then he starts moving because you're coming in and he's moving. And, and uh, what happened with Big John was he got cut off by somebody. He was supposed to be like the second guy in. Well, he got cut off by somebody who, who's just the timing was off or whatever. And so then he's he's trying to work his way in, but then another guy's coming. Then another guy's he's trying to work. Now all of a sudden everybody's down, but Jim and but but Johnny and Ed. And, and they're facing each other, <laughs> and Big John waves his hands at them and sits on the, on the mats and lays down, <laughs> and the crowd went nuts. This was at, the, at one of the internationals. That's awesome. The I'm crowd have to find went that nuts. Footage. <laughs> it was like, no, 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 I'm done. I'm, yeah. He just laid down like, you, you got me. I'm done. I'm finished. <laughs> oh, that's great. Big John Walker told me one night we were having uh, pizza, and um, – and he says, uh, do you remember that time on La Cienega Boulevard when uh, he had, <laughs> there's another whole story. This is, this is, we don't have enough time for this one. But Big John had just come out of San Quentin, and we didn't know that. He had done seven years for safe cracking with explosives. And he had been into a whole lot of other stuff. But anyway, he had quite a, quite a history. And none of us do that. Well, you know, <laughs> a place like San Quentin, uh, he told me later on, he said that uh, if you're up for parole, there are guys that will bust your parole just to keep you there because they can't get out. That's just for spite. Mm-hmm. You're getting out? No, you ain't. Because if you fight, your, your parole's busted. Right. Doesn't make any difference who you're fighting or who's right or who's wrong or who started or whatever. Or if you're defending your life. And he said it was one. It was another convict who came along, happened along at the time this guy was gonna was gonna make John fight for his life, and uh, and the guy told him he says you bust his parole, so I'll kill you, and and everybody knew this guy and everybody knew he was 
he wasn't just talking. He meant what he said. So John said, I owe him my, my, my freedom, my life, basically. He's because I was going to have to fight this guy to stay alive because he was going to get me with a, with a shiv. Anyhow, so Big John, he said, do you remember that time I lost the other bullet? I said, yeah. He said, you killed my arm. You killed it. He said, I had to, he said, I had to work left-handed. He was a, a, a sound man for ABC TV, wide world, I mean, uh, ABC News. And um, he was part of a team. They had a cameraman, a sound man, and an announcer, I mean, a, uh, a reporter that would go out on, on whatever, you know, during the day and bring their film back and so on. Phil with 11. And um, so he was he was the sound guy. And he said, I had to operate all my things with my left hand. And said, and I'm right-handed because you killed my arm. And I said, I remember that. I said, uh, uh, I remember you raised your hand. I was teaching blocking. And I and he's a big John. He didn't get the name because he's tiny. You know, so big man. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because I'm not. And, and I remember him, I remember the incident, because I remember him raising his hand, and, and he's and teaching inward blocks, all block. and, and he says, does this stuff work? And I thought, that's a strange question. And all of a sudden, I realized, the man's a mountain. And he's thinking to himself, if I want to hit you in the head, I'm going to hit you in the head. These little puny-ass blocks that you're doing aren't going to stop me from hitting you in the head. I'm going to take your head clean off if I want to. And I said, well, John, I said, yeah, they really do. And I said, uh, so now we're going to have to find out. Now you're going to have to throw on me. Oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that, kiddo. Call everybody kiddo. Call the old man kiddo. I'm sure he called a warden kiddo. <laughs> he was a giant dude. So yeah, everybody yeah, everybody's kiddo. <laughs> so, so I said, no, 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 it's too late for that, John. I said, it's too late. I said, now you got me wondering. And I said, I can't afford to wonder about this stuff. I can't, I cannot afford that. So uh, now you're going to have to throw on me. And I said, when you do... I said, don't don't hold back because if you do, we're not gonna we're not gonna find out anything anything. We won't you won't prove anything by doing that. So he said, oh, okay, and he threw, and I did an inward block, and I stopped his blow, and uh, he, I think he might have moved me physically <laughs> on the mat. I might have slid a little bit, but I didn't go away, and I, I certainly the block held. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the moving as the entire body versus that block collapsing and taking the face. Absolutely, any day of the week. Absolutely. So, and I don't even know if I did that, but, but anyhow, I you know, the block held, and and I said, uh, do it again, and he said, no, no, that 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 was enough, and I said, you're sure? And he said, yeah, okay, okay, right, let's go, let's go on. So we went on. Well, it was like a couple of years or more later that he brought this up because, like I said, I'd have pizza, beer, whatever after a tournament. And, uh, and he told me, you killed my arm. And he said, I thought to myself, now this is a quote. He said, I thought to myself, that little prick didn't have to hit me that hard. <laughs> well, he was going to hit you that hard. So well, I and I told him, I said, John, I said, I didn't hit you at all. I said, I said that was your power transfer. And he said, I know that now. He said, I didn't know it then. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, God, the... the you know, something's happened over the years. It's just, it's, uh, it's been such fun. I forget who I was talking to one time. This guy, I believe he was dying of cancer. Uh, but he was, I think he, he owned a, a supply store. And we just got to talking. He looks at me and he says, you've really had a lot of fun doing this, haven't you? I <laughs> said, so you bet I have. Nope. You bet I have. It has been nothing but fun. So dovetailing off of some of those early year stories, uh, you just told the story about Big John and the inward block. 
every time I've ever seen you at a seminar, you take the most junior students and teach them yourselves. And in numerous interviews, I've heard you uh, make the comment that the job of teaching the most junior students, so typically, you know, white, yellow, orange level, that should be along to the most senior guy in, in place because that's how they get the best instruction, right? So that's my feeling, yeah. Do you think it was at the Crenshaw School where you developed that kind of a uh, teaching philosophy? Or where, let me rephrase that. Where was it that you developed that teaching philosophy where it had, you know, the senior guy should be the one in charge of the most junior ones? Basically, it was after because it was, uh, I, I was the guy that taught them all their basics. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's funny because it seems like everybody's first group is their best. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, most of the time it's because they turn the teaching over to somebody else and somebody That's else right. and somebody exactly. else. That's yeah. right, exactly, exactly. I mean, you take Norris's guys. His first group was the best he had. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't know many others, but I, I, can, I can assume because that's how it is. And uh, so I remember when, when uh, Vic opened up his school in 81, uh, on uh, Hawthorne Boulevard, and uh, that's when we got the name the Karate because everything was the connection and the, and the gold connection, the this connection, the car connection, the whatever. So I said, "Well, do the Karate connection." Okay, fine, and we did. And uh, and he said, uh, "I said, so what time is the uh, is is the beginning of class?" He said, "Well, you're not going to teach that. You only teach the advanced." And I said, "No, no, I'm going to teach the beginners." Well, why? I said, it's because it's the basics, Vic. I said, who taught you your basics? He said, well, you did. Exactly. I said, would you rather have had somebody else? Well, no. I said, there you go. No, that is so important. The basics are so important. Well, they're, they're the foundation. They're the, the bedrock of, of the system, any system. And if you don't get good basics, to me, it's like the blind leading the blind. You turn the basics over to a, a brown belt. And he wants to emulate you, so, well, I can't be, I'm too good to be teaching this. So he turns it over to a green belt, who turns it over to a purple belt. Who, eventually, you got an orange belt teaching your basics, and you got the blind leading the blind. He doesn't know his basics, mm-hmm. especially he's been, tell, he's been taught to by somebody that didn't know him to begin with. Mm-hmm. Or not didn't know him, but certainly not the way, you know, the head instructor knows him. So that's why, uh, that's why I always insisted on. Teaching the beginners, teaching the basics. And that's, I remember Ed Parker telling me one time, I can't teach beginners anymore. Mm-hmm. I said, really? No, wow. I said, that's when you see the big, the biggest leap of advancement mm-hmm. in the beginners. You see guys, that people that really don't know nothing about defending themselves, going to be able to defend themselves quite adequately mm-hmm. in, a, in a short period of time. Now, as far as, being able to do all the things that we do later on, you know, attack and so on and so forth, that takes that takes longer. But I said, boy, they, they get once they get their blocking and their maneuvering and, and their juxtapositioning down, uh, they become. How many times have you seen two black belts spar? I mean, and and they go like minutes at a time, and neither one can support can score a point on the other. Yeah, it's the ones that are really good. You see that all the time. Yeah, all the time. Why? Because they got the good basics. That, that's right, and and they've and they've you know they, their 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 defenses are so good. You take and you put that guy in the street. How is some poor slob on the street ever going to get to him? I mean, he's he's going to think you know just oh, what have I run into here? <clears throat> oh, I've seen that so many times, and, and it feels good when you're freestyling free somebody who is really at your level. Steve Sanders and I used to. Oh God, we had some fantastic matches. I mean, they'd last minutes at a time, and neither one of us. Would, would really score a meaningful point and then all of a sudden he would 
<laughs> Steve was one of those guys. I'll tell you a good one about that. <laughs> Steve would always peel off to his to my right, to his his left, going backwards. And uh, and so I thought to myself, I use the old Western expression, cut him off at the pass. So he'll still do it. I'll cut him off. This. Well, that doesn't happen because he sees that and he moves someplace else. So that just doesn't happen. And I mean, you try everything you can with a guy like him. And, uh, and so one night uh, we're freestyling and nothing extraordinary, but I, I, I just got off the dime a lot quicker than he expected. And I was, I was on top of him. I mean, on top of him. And I inadvertently, now I've done this on purpose many, many times. I'll step on your foot. I'll trap your foot. I'll trap your lead foot so that you can't get away so I can get you. Well, I, with him, I did it inadvertently. I, I didn't mean to get, but I was on him that hard, that fast, and I punched him in the mouth. I mean, I got him square in the mouth. He, he had a tooth came through his, his below his Why? lower lip, and it cut my it cut my knuckle. That's how that's how deep it went. Mm-hmm. And and I remember he, he started dropping. I grabbed him, and I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, Steve, Steve, you know, you all right? And his eyes are doing the old gumball thing, you know, rolling around, and. Um, and he, he finally came around, and, and it's like, I, my tooth, my... And I said, don't let it come out. Mm-hmm. Bite it down. Keep it in. Just don't let it come out. And and next day, he went to the dentist, and the dentist told him, he said, best best thing you could have done. He says, because when it's out, it's out. And he said, mm-hmm. we got to put a fake one in. Said, but now, he said, they will reseat themselves if you can keep them in there mm-hmm. long enough. So he did. And uh, about two weeks later, we're freestyling again. And I actually, I got a hold of him, and I got him turned, and I'm going to be able to plow him in the ribs. And in a flash, I thought, this is really, really uncanny. And a foot came up between us, <laughs> and there was no space between us. I don't know how he did that. The man's a contortionist, because his foot came up and caught me with a heel under my chin that lifted me off the mat. And I remember thinking to myself, my, I mean, my jaws were clenched, and I remember my, my thinking to myself, if I open my mouth, I'm going to see all my teeth drop onto the mat. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God. And and I opened my mouth, and it was like, you could hear my jaw, you know. Oh, he said it wasn't payback. But I don't know. <laughs> no, it wasn't. A little bit of a receipt, maybe? It wasn't. No, he just, you know, it was just, it's what happens. I mean, you, you know, you. You catch him like that, and boy, that I gotta tell you, I just, I didn't think you'd get a piece of newspaper between us, let alone a, a foot. Especially the heel. The heel. From that position, yeah, yeah. Yeah, come up with a heel like that. God. Efren a, was good at that, too. Who? Efren uh, Palacios. Oh, oh, yeah. He was really good at getting a foot someplace, and you didn't think there was a foot anywhere near there. That's right, yeah. No, Efren was, uh, was fantastic at that. Yeah, he was he was very Sanders like, well, Muhammad like. I I I'm sorry, Steve. I still have a tough time. <laughs> you you know you're Steve Sanders for me for so long, and then we didn't see each other for so long, and then all of a sudden I heard you're Muhammad, and and it's like, okay, but but yeah, the, I'm, I'm sure the he brain doesn't, doesn't catch either. up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite certain he doesn't get offended by that. So mm. I certainly hope not. Okay, so. Let's talk a little bit about present era now that we've had a whole lot of fun stuff in the early years. The IKCA now has over 600 black belts on the family tree. How do you feel knowing that you have made Kempo training available to so many people worldwide? feel great. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, because until video came along, you were you were relegated to what you had locally, and that's all you had. Um, and and like, all right, for instance, uh, testing. Why do we test? Well, we test because you have to see what the person's doing, you know, in order to to elevate them in rank. And and rank is uh, it's it's the old. You know, little pat on the on the on the hindy that uh, that makes everybody feel good, and and that's what it's all about. Um, in some systems, they don't have anything like that, and uh, they get along all right, also, I guess. So, uh, is it needed? I don't know, but it's it's the way it was when uh, when I came up, and like with the belt, the whole belt thing, uh, colored belts. In the beginning, it was white, brown, and black. In fact, in the beginning, it was white. I mean, back in the back back in the you know few centuries ago, everybody got a uh, a garment and uh, and the belt is what held held it together, and uh, and you wrapped it up, you carried it by your belt, and the tradition was to wash your your garment but never the belt. So what happened? The belt became dirty. Well, it's like uh, it's like in the military when your when your fatigues get faded out, they get what in the Marine Corps we call it salty. Because I guess when he, back in the day they washed them in salt water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyhow, so you, you began, you became salty, and uh, and you could look at a guy and you could tell how long he's been in, roughly, just by the by the how bleached out his uniform was. Well, then eventually that thing falls apart, and in in the in the case of martial arts, I can see somebody saying, "I can't go back to a white belt." I mean, come on! Mm -hmm. I worked too hard. I got too much blood, sweat, and tears into this into this belt, but it fell apart. I can't use it. Uh, honey, would you dye my belt black for me, please? <laughs> <laughs> I really, I can see. I, I remember Ed saying at the time we were white, brown, and black. Hey, he said, um, he, he said, oh, I love, I love. Somebody asked him one time. I think it was a journalist. It was at a demonstration on La Siena Boulevard, and he said, "Can you describe your art in just a few words?" And Ed, without hesitation, he says, "Yes, it's organized, scientific, dirty fighting," <laughs> and I liked it. I yep. like that. That to me, that that made all the sense of the world. Organized, scientific, dirty fighting, because there's no other fighting when it comes to fighting. I mean, it's only one kind. Anyway, um, I got off track now. <laughs> Went into the belt system. Oh, the belt system. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> the belt system. Yeah. So, uh, when um, several of us wanted to go to the color belt because we had just on our white belt we would get four tips four brown stripes uh like hash marks in the military and um and that that designated how high you up you were toward brown and after four stripes it was brown well that took about that took about two years and then you were brown belt for about two years so i i i, I began seeing a pattern in tournaments and norris's guys were winning all of the lower belt divisions. When it came to black belt, um, his guys were the same as everybody. Some some did, some didn't. Some got better. Some some dropped out. Whatever. But in the lower divisions, he was taking them all. And all of a sudden, one day, I thought to myself, "Of course he is," because I found out that his guys took about three years to get the brown belt. We were getting brown in two, but we were two we were two years as brown belts. Mm -hmm. So what did that mean? That meant for a whole year. He had people that were brown belts who were fighting in the white belt division. Mm -hmm. And then by the time they were brown belts, they were, they were second-year brown belts, so they were winning brown belt divisions, a lot of them. So it gave them a distinct advantage. Now, I don't believe that Chuck 
deliberately did that at mm-hmm. all. I don't think that was for that reason at all. I think that's simply the, the tradition that it was in his system, and that's how he did it. And it just happened that it, it turned out to be real advantageous for him. So, I mean, I never brought it up to him. Uh, why? Why would I? Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, if I had him shoot, he said, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. You know? I never noticed that before. Cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I went to Ed, and I said to him, I said, we we, we got to do the, the color belt system, and we got to take three years for Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. First of all, that's the, the color belt system is Korean. We're not Korean. I said, I don't care if it's if it's Ubangi. <laughs> I, go, I don't care. who. It's a good idea, Ed. I said, it's a good idea. And uh, no, 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 we can't do that. Color belt, no, no. And three years for Brown, no, no, no. It's always been two years for Brown, two years as a Brown. So <laughs> I think finally somebody convinced them that the color belt also was a good idea financially. Mm-hmm. You get to sell a new belt instead of somebody putting it. And there was there was no um, uniform uniformity to the uh, to the to the, the, the tips that we were putting on mm-hmm. some guys use brown tape some guys use brown marking pen some guys i don't know what uh, i don't want to say what they might have used but i mean it, it put a brown strap in you know yeah. and it was all different they were different different lengths different widths different everything so this would this would bring a sort of a uniformity to it that we didn't have before and uh so finally when somebody rang the cash register uh and cha-ching and he realized that that was a good idea and it was a good idea um he did it, but never the never the two years uh, for Brown. I mean, never never changed that. So uh, it's another case of I, I won I won a battle, but I lost the war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I won a lot of battles, but I but he still always won the war, mm-hmm. which is how, as it should be. All right. Anyway, getting back to uh, where we're, we're at, uh, we're over six hundred black belts now. Right. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, no, there was the the, the theme of the six. Well, so I was asking how you felt that now you've brought you've about six hundred people plus now around the entire world that have been able to earn their black belts in Kempo. Some of them probably would have figured it out at a local school, but you've got six hundred that have now come through the IKCA, where in some cases that wouldn't have been the case at all for them to, to get any kind of training. Right, that's true. Yeah, uh, somebody said you know one on one training is is the best kind of training you can get. I agree. Um, providing, depending on who, you, who your instructor is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in this case, we had people that, uh, well, when Vic and I created the, the whole thing, uh, I was over 30 years in the art. He was over 25. So we had over 55 years of experience together. Mm-hmm. And when we put it together, uh, I mean, he had ideas, I had ideas. And, and by working together, uh, I remember... I mean, I was used to doing everything on eight, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. You write this, you write that, and you, you get reams of paper before you know it. And you got them with dividers, and you, oh my God, trying to find anything in there is a nightmare, mm-hmm. especially back in the days before I could even type. Uh, you know, it's all by hand. And, and, and Vic came up with the idea. He says, let's put it on a board across, across this whole 12 feet of, of wall space and, and using pastes, post its. Mm-hmm. And and we'll do this here. We got to have that there. Wait a minute. This is this should be earlier. We, we're waiting too long. We got to. This should be later. This this we're jumping the gun on this one. And so by being able to look at the whole thing, great idea, great idea. We look at the whole. We could see the whole system right up there in front of us, and it was easy to see what was where and, and how it was how it was fitting in and how it was going to position itself against something else and and so on. Uh, it really made it it made it great. 
So, and of course, my idea was less is more. Uh, I felt that uh, that because the early guys thought that Ed Parker hadn't taught him enough, that he said, you want more? I'll give you more. <clears throat> and for a couple of years, for a few years, basically, we learned a new technique a week. But you add that up over a few years, and that's, that's 150 techniques plus what we had. Plus, it got to the point where y- your mind is only capable of, of retaining so much. Practically, yeah. Practically, absolutely. Yeah, you can do the whole uh, encyclopedia thing, but trying to make that practical is really difficult. It's No, it's impossible. It really is. It's impossible. You can't. People were walking around with the big red book, and you'd ask them, you know this or that? They'd look it up. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know that mm-hmm. one. Really? You know it? No, you don't. You've had it. You learned it, but you don't know it. Yeah, you can't own it. You can't own You can't. No, you can't even come close to it. So consequently, uh, when he did in 81, when he opened the school, I remember him telling me, he says, I want you to be the head instructor. I said, oh, good. What are we going to teach? He said, well, <laughs> what are we going to teach? Teach, you know, what the old man teaches. I said, everything? He said, yeah. I said, no. Not interested. Thanks anyway. He said, what? He said, no, Vic. I said, you can't. I said, well, how many black belts have you made in the last few years? People get at the blue belt, and they look in front of them, and they say, oh, my God, I got that. What you have to learn? They look behind them, and everything they learn, and it's like, jeez, I mean, I, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. As a result, <clears throat> people just weren't getting all the way. Did they have enough? Probably. They, they still had enough to go out and defend themselves. Mm-hmm. But as far as learning it all, uh, it's too monumental a task. So I cut it down by a lot at that point. And Ed Parker used to come to our school, big school, watch what we were doing, loved everything, never said a word to me, never got me aside and said, hey, Chuck, how come you're not, uh, you know, how come you're not teaching this and this and this and this? Was, I'm thinking he's afraid of what I was going to tell him. <laughs> but he <laughs> never he, did. Or he just saw the quality and was happy. He saw the quality. He was happy with our black belts, and, and that's all that's all that counted. He's happy with everybody, really. That's all, that's all that counted, yeah. If he was happy with what we were doing, I was happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I used to, I uh, I like I like doing as as much realism as I can. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to go out in the in between the buildings. There was a driveway asphalt that was kind of beat up, little pock little uh, potholes here and there, and there was one slash of light from the street uh, street lamp that would uh, shine about to about a third of the driveway, and from there it went from light to dark immediately, and uh, and I would have the guys freestyle back and forth in this driveway. And it was about wide enough to where you could really run a guy across and he could run you back or you could stand in the middle and fight or whatever you wanted to. And it was great, you know, because it was almost pitch darkness in, in mm-hmm. some spots. And you'd hear, oh, 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 ah, oh, damn it. You know, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, and then you'd be, be twisting ankles. And I tell the guys, I said, uh, next class, I said, wear something you don't mind getting beat up and dirty and tore up. And and shoes that uh, not not don't wear don't wear your cowboy boots, mm-hmm. you know. Wear some some soft sole shoes that if somebody does get kicked or whatever, you know, they're not going to get uh, really injured. And uh, that's what we were doing. Oh, we used to do other stuff. We'd take, I'd have them put the furniture over in the corner. They'd take a couch and a chair and a coffee table and they'd fight around that, mm-hmm. because that's how it is. Mm-hmm. That's how it happens. Until one day a guy picked up the coffee table and said, oh, stop, stop, put the table down. We're not using weapons yet. Yeah. Did anybody go through the table? Right. <laughs> yeah. Now he's going to use the table to bash somebody. Yeah. So, um, but it just, at the Santa Monica school, there was a long hallway and there was doorways. 
and uh, we'd hide in the doorways. And as if people would come out, we'd attack them. <laughs> Run the gauntlet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. One night, I said, I said to everybody, you ready? And they said, yeah. And I ran. Shoo! And I, <laughs> I was past everybody before they had a chance to say, boo. <laughs> I said, we won't do that from now on. I said, but I just had to test you guys. <laughs> nice. Mm. So anyway. Um, you had 600 of us now. 600. Plus. Yeah, over 600. Uh, there are people that could never have, have studied the art. And, and again, is it, uh, is it good to have one-on-one instruction? Yeah, when you can. Yeah, if you can, absolutely. Now, some of the best people that we've had come through um, came through with a combination mm-hmm. of instructor and, and video. That's that's the best you can get. Mm-hmm. If you got a certified instructor as your as your instructor and you have the videos, oh my God, I mean, that's, wow. I give you a, a funny, our very first, uh, Tom Bleeker will jump down my throat every time I say very first. He said, is it the first or isn't it the first, Chuck? How could it be the very first? I, all right, Tom, uh, you're right. Shout out Tom Leaker. <laughs> yes. The first black belt we had come through the video course, and, and he was part of the school as well, kid by the name of uh, Matt Robinson. And he told us this story. He says, uh, he, he got the flu, and he said, I was so sick. He said, I was in bed. He said, I couldn't do anything, but I could watch TV at least. So he said, I thought, well, I'll watch their, their Orange Belt tape. So he said, I started watching your Orange Belt tape. And he said, I watched it so many times I could literally lip sync along with you when you were saying things. And, 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 you know, and he said, I do everything. And he said, one night I'm watching it and I thought to myself, wait, hold, hold. And I had to back it up. So I never heard that before. And he said, and this was a good piece of information. He said, there is so much information on those, on that orange belt tape. He said, I can't believe it, how much information there is. And he said, to watch it just a few times, he says, you're doing yourself a tremendous disservice if you do that. He says, you've got to study that tape. He said, and he said, I couldn't believe that I had watched it that many times and I had not picked up that piece of information, whether it was something you were demonstrating or just saying or whatever. He said, but it was, it was something I wanted to know, and I, I'm glad I did. But he said, I couldn't believe it. How, how could I have watched the tape that many times and not heard that? And he said, I finally figured it out. He said, you guys were sneaking in my bedroom, putting stuff on the tape while I was asleep. <laughs> He said, because that's the only way I can figure that I didn't hear that all those times. But there is so, so much information. But that's the beauty of a video, really. Mm-hmm. Because in a class, all right, you as an instructor, you know this. Mm-hmm. You're only good for so many times. You can only show something so many times, and then you move on. Mm-hmm. Now, if there's somebody in the class that doesn't get it, he's just got to get it next time. But there may not be a next time when he's there. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one. What what was everybody's favorite Kempo technique? Everybody's favorite. I know what my personal favorite is. Yeah, I actually really like gathering the dragon. No, I'm talking about not 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 our system. Not not in. Oh, in, I have no idea. I started with. Uh, okay, Kempo okay, all right. So. Well, it was it was our variation, and we have we have a few of them actually. It's uh, it's called five swords. Okay, I know. Right. What five swords, right? That's everybody. First of all. It really isn't that great. It doesn't. I mean, when you're hit, doing that heel palm, the guy's going away from you. Yeah. He's not bending over. It's ridiculous. Anyhow, yeah, right. Come to me. Come to me. Yeah, right. So anyhow, this was everybody's favorite technique in in, in the old Kempo. And uh, when I was teaching on on Crenshaw Boulevard, and then we we switched out, then we we had to leave there, and we went over onto La Brea in in Inglewood. Uh, I get this this kid. He's uh, coming up the brown belt, and uh, and one night we're going over techniques, and we we hit on. 
on five swords again i mean that was everybody's favorite and it was it was being done all the time and this kid was was almost a brown belt and he comes up to me after the class and he says wow that's a great technique i never saw that before he had just happened to miss the classes where the technique was being taught all the way through brown all the way through brown he had never seen, and I was like blown away. I said, how, yeah, could you, how could you possibly? I said, that's everybody's favorite technique. I said, even though I'm, it's not mine, but <laughs> I said, it's, my God, how could that have happened? Well, with the video, it's right there. You mm -hmm. can't miss anything. You cannot miss it because you can't progress to the next technique until you got it. Mm -hmm. you, you might not care for it that much. You might go, go over it lightly and say, eh, it's okay. But, but you know, you can't, you can't miss it. It's all there. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the beauties of, of the system as it's laid out. And it, it took us two years of that board up there and figuring what we had to do and analyzing everything that we had in, in 55 years mm -hmm. of learning. And at this time, Vic was teaching full-time uh, at the West LA School. I mean, he was, he was up on everything. Mm -hmm. I had already cut so much stuff out that there was stuff I didn't remember anymore. But I, what I remembered was was the really solid, the, really, the stuff you want, mm -hmm. and uh, and that was that's how that went. But uh, no, with with video, when we when we finally got it defined after two full years of working on it, and we finally laid it out and uh, and did it, uh, boy, it, it just it, it became so solid. And I think that's what, uh, you know, and all right, once again, uh, not once again, it's actually the first time I said it today, Ed Parker's quote, I would rather have 10 techniques I can fight with than 100 techniques that fight me. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, I've seen other fighters, all right, well, talk about Joe Lewis. Joe had a very limited um, arsenal of weapons. In his early days, he got a whole lot better later on, but he didn't need to get a whole lot better, really. Yeah, he won so many with just those three moves. That's right. Mm -hmm. He had a blasted back fist. He had a, a, a fantastic side thrust kick, and he had a reverse punch. And but but but, he, you couldn't get him. I mean, he was he was in and out so fast, or he's out. I mean, you'd go for him, he wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But yet you'd stand there, and all of a sudden he's on you, and uh, and 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 beating the crap out of you. So, I mean, the, the guy, he didn't have much, but he didn't need any more. Mm -hmm. He was winning international championships with three lousy moves. Except his three lousy moves were better than most people's real good moves. That's right. His three <laughs> lousy moves were, were better than most people's entire arsenal. Mm -hmm. Oh, they got 16 things they can do. What is it with uh, uh, Sumo? Sumo wrestling. I think they've, they've got how many how many moves? They, 100 it's, and something? It's not that many, yeah. But the, the ones they use is like, like three or four. Yeah, but they just perfect them and get really, really good at them. They can apply them in different places. Right. Same right. concept. Right. But they got, I mean, what they actually practice in their dojos are like hundreds, mm -hmm. or not hundreds, but at least dozens. Yeah. Dozens of, and uh, up and over 100. And how many did they need? Those three. Just a few really good ones. That's right. No, I'd rather have the 10 techniques I could fight with than 100 that fight me. Mm -hmm. I don't ever want to get on the street and have to wonder about what I'm going to be doing. Or thinking about it. No, you just want to be able to move. That's right. Oh, just just move. Steve Muhammad. Hey, I got it right, Steve. He uh, told me about an incident one time where he went to buy some sodas for his kids, and he was coming. He was on his way there, and and some kids 
uh, on the on his way, they they kind of stopped him, and uh, and they were he he felt they're pretty intimidating, mm-hmm. and uh, and the, the one he started asking about karate. Yeah, he takes karate, and Steve says, "Yeah, a little bit," which is the understatement of the century. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and and coming back, the same kid is like now he's in his face, and he said, um, uh, "I want to know how karate work against a gun." And Steve said, "When he hears gun, his blood runs cold because Steve was in Vietnam. He uh, he knows the effect of guns, having suffered them." And uh, and he said the guy started to reach behind him like he was carrying something in the small of his back. And Steve says, I remember he was so close I could feel his breath on my face. And so he couldn't he couldn't cock. So basically he had to he had to use like sort of like reverse. Uh, anyhow, he had he was so close that he had to actually move away from it as he was as he was striking. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I use it all the time. I think of anyway. He uh, found out later on, uh, and then some other guy touched him and he kicked him, and then some other guy he had hit him, and he said one guy. I remember he said I threw a bottle of pop at him, <laughs> <laughs> and he says I remember leaving, and 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 these guys are basically on the ground, mm-hmm. in in various stages of of trying to recover, and uh, then he found out later on, from some some guy, he said, um, oh he said that kid was kind of a goofball. He said he didn't he didn't have a gun. And Steve said, well, that's his first mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and no, his first mistake was saying he did. And uh, and the guys, no, they were just they were just messing with you, and which is such a bad idea. And um, Steve found out that when they went to the emergency, the doctor that was treating him said, uh, oh, you were hit with a, oh, he's, he knocked out the guy's two front teeth and broke off a, another one with that with the shot, straight shot to the a side fist to the, to the face. And he split him from his nose to his chin. And did all that damage with one shot, and uh, and then another guy has ribs caved in, and somebody else had this and that, and and the doctor was, well, what happened to you? What happened to you? What? And they said, and he said, well, who did this? And it was the same guy. Well, who did that? Same guy. Who did that? same guy? He said, what? What? He's one guy did all this damage to you guys? Yeah, the doctor was blown away. He couldn't believe it while he's sewing him up. So, he didn't have time to think. Mm-hmm. He said, all I saw was targets. That's all I saw, and and some of these guys trying to stop him. Hey, Steve, it's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. But by that time, it was too late. Now you already flipped the switch. Yep, he was already in go mode. So, yes. <laughs> so six hundred black belts later, six. Developed, we've developed the oh, sorry, six hundred yeah. black belts later, we developed the system. So there's enough material to make you have every principle and concept you're going to need, but the focus is still on spontaneity. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. If you're not spontaneous, uh, it's like with shoes. Uh, we, we train with shoes and we've done that since I, <laughs> I actually had shoes introduced into the second international championships. Yeah. Okay. They, that was re- that was real, real, real early. And that was, that was a funny one because, uh, when we announced that, uh, yes, shoes would be acceptable if they're soft sold, soft sold, and um, not you know not leather, <clears throat> and uh, oh oh no oh god there was guys said, oh oh you can't do that oh no that's that's, that's totally out of the, out of the ball game, and I remember there was uh, uh, this is one contingent of guys 
and uh, they were totally against against shoes, and uh, and they said, well, let's ask Mister, and and they had two Japanese gentlemen in in snow white geese. Well, we were all in white geese at those at that time, but I mean these guys were so traditional. I mean you could you could you could smell it on them, mm-hmm. and and I thought, well, I just lost that argument. If they're gonna leave it up mm-hmm. to these guys. I mean, for God's sake, who who less would I want? You know, to do that, and they could barely speak English, but they got them over there, and they explained to them about the shoes, and and everything, talk back and forth. And they said, "Good idea, nice." <laughs> so, a surprise. yeah, so we had traction. We had, you know, a surprise. My God, I couldn't believe it, and uh, and it was it was great. And by the next year, oh, well, that was the year I was the tournament director, mm-hmm. so I had a, I had just a little bit of juice, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually had them introduced. And the next year, and I think for about the next 10, no shoes. Hmm. And, of course, there are still people working out in their bare feet, which makes no sense to me at all because, first of all, look what you got on your feet right now. Mm-hmm. And if you have to move and you're not used to moving with what you got on your feet right now. That whole ball game can change real quick. It can change, it, and even if it doesn't change. It can. Mm-hmm. It can. But if you're wearing your shoes, you always got shoes on. I work out in my boots. Just so you make sure you're familiar with them so yep. you're going to wear them. Yep, and I, I slide around more. And But if I'm out with them on, what am I going to do? You're kick them off? to know what it means. And the last thing I want to do is kick them off because they're great weapons. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just it makes sense on so many levels. Like with, you know, training in, in other environments. Mm-hmm. I love the – I read one time about people that would actually go out and try to attack people from the school and set up scenarios. But they didn't know about it, and they said, "But it just got too dangerous." Yeah, People, it just it that, just got, that can get misinterpreted if somebody. Well, the thing is, if if, if you, I mean, they they try to make it for real, so you're going to accept that, and then people start getting hurt. Yeah, I mean, they they couldn't do it. They yeah, said, "No, pretty no, soon no. you run out of training partners." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like in a hurry. Yeah, you've been in it for this is 58 years, if my math is right. Yeah, 58 years next month, and you're uh, still February. at it. Sorry, sorry. It's not January yet. Yeah, still, still at it. Still yeah. at it. Still teaching every week. Still developing. You donate your time. Every time somebody you know asks for help, you know, Bob White's uh, benefit was a great example. He went down and helped facilitate for Albert Cornejo when he got his 10th. Right. You know, Everybody who asks, you always help. You always I try. Help. Yeah, if I can. I'm sure. If I'm in town. <laughs> Lately, it's been uh, we've been out of town where we've been in town, so... Uh, which is great because that was the that was the idea that was the plan years ago to be able to do that. Uh, so, like I said early on, it's it's great great physical benefits. I feel that I'm in the shape that I'm in today because of, of what I've I've done. Uh, I've tried to keep my weight down. Uh, at one point, I got up to like 180 pounds, and I can't carry 180 pounds, and I'm in the low 160s now, and I'd like to be in the mid 150s. Because that was about my best fighting weight. Uh, I don't want to do any fighting anymore, but you still do what you have to, and uh, and I enjoy. I, I still enjoy thumping. So <clears throat> it's not as easy as it used to be, and the the reflexes aren't quite there, but I still enjoy it. And so the physical benefits are there. We know that. And uh, don't don't beat yourself up too much. Don't you know like try to work your knuckles and things of that sort. Um, because the chances of you having to use them in a street confrontation are so slim. Of all the guys that I've known that are in the art, um, 
so few have actually had to. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have the opportunity to. I've had people draw back on me already, and I just look them in the eye and say, don't do that. And for some reason, they've kind of got the message, and they just are done something else instead, call me a name. I can live with that. <clears throat> but uh, I think it was Tom Bleeker that said, if I learned this art just to really be able to defend myself, I've wasted a lot of time and money because I've never had the need in all these years. I've never had the need, and neither have I. Another thing about the art is it gives you an awareness that I think a lot of people don't get because of what you do and because of what you know the possibilities are. And you can kind of smell things. I know when we were uh, recently on a trip, and there was probably no danger at all, but I didn't like where we were at in Tahiti. I didn't like it. We're on a cruise, and uh, the the gentleman who was showing us around the island <clears throat> had to drop us off at, at a distance because he just couldn't drive into that area. And we had to cross that area, and it was dark, and it was it was desolate. There was nobody around. And I thought, there could be somebody around, and, uh, and they could be... Uh, <laughs> with ill intent but nothing happened and, and there wasn't but I just didn't like the feeling and and I was I was alert through the entire walk I mean I, I was watching where we were going what we were doing and uh, I usually have something with me that uh, is a little bit more than my uh, appendages uh, just you know for things of this sort like like my slinger mm -hmm. my key slinger I mean that's that's all that's that's <laughs> <clears throat> That's one of my uh, my main things to have, and uh, so if you're doing it for for physical conditioning, and as I said earlier, for that that insurance policy that you hope you're never going to have to use, but you might, um, that too. Things have changed since I got in the art, because Kempo alone isn't enough anymore. It really, if you don't get some ground, some ground experience, um, you're lacking. It wasn't like that for, for the longest time. Stand-up was, was all you needed. Now there are people intent upon taking you to the ground. And if you don't know what you're doing on the ground, you're going to be in, in Hurt City. So you got to know what you're doing on the ground as well. It wasn't like that when I started and for the longest time. However, I'll say this about that. Get your stand-up first, because I can't remember ever seeing two people crawl across the floor and start wrestling to start a fight. All fights start standing up. Mm -hmm. Now, the, uh, the the ground guys say, yeah, 95% of fights wind up on the ground. I would say 95% of their fights wind up on the ground. 95% of our fights stay standing up, because that's where it starts, that's where we finish it. Now, if you don't know what you're doing and you get taken down, like I say, you're, you could be in trouble. So you're going to have to get some. Which would you start with? I would start with a stand-up system. I would get that first, and I wouldn't waste my time by splitting it and trying to get the ground and the stand-up at the same time. I think that's too difficult. So I'd get my stand-up. I'd be, I'd be ready to, uh, to go with that, and then I'd get some ground. And you better do it while you're young mm -hmm. because the ground is unforgiving. And if you start it like I tried to do it in my 60s, um, that was hard. That was very, very hard.
And I finally got a knee popped out, and I was on crutches for a while, and it never happened to me with Kempo. Mm -hmm. The worst I ever had with Kempo was three stitches on my eye. Mm -hmm. Three stitches. And I mean, and I, I tried to get away with none, but uh, Doc Schultz, one of our brown belts at the time, said, uh, no, we'll just go to the office, I'll stitch it up, and, and you know, it'll be nothing. And I said, Doc, put a butterfly thing on it, it'll be nothing now. He said, you'll have a scar. I said, ask me if I care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care, so I'll have a scar. He says, you're afraid of the needle, aren't you? I said, you're damn right I am. <laughs> I said, I don't want you poking me with a needle. He said, well, I'll give you a beer. I said, oh, okay. So <laughs> I drank a beer. He stitched me up, and, uh, and that's all there was to it. Uh, I took the stitches out myself later on. When I get loose, it's easy. So now get your stand up. Learn how to fight on your feet, and uh, and hopefully you won't go down. But if you do, you got to have some of the ground stuff too. That's about the, uh, the best advice I could give. Okay. And then... For people who want to contact you, how would they, how would you like people to get a hold of you? Uh, the IKCA has a website, and uh, there's contact information on our website. www.karateconnection.com. www.karateconnection.com. That's it. Uh, Chuck, thank you so much for allowing me to come down here and interview you here on location in beautiful Paso Robles, California. <laughs> Steve, this has been a pleasure beyond what I can tell you. It was. I'm really looking forward to this because I have a feeling this is going to be yet another podcast where I have to have somebody come back for part two. <laughs> part two. <laughs> well, there's probably a part two here somewhere. I'm sure there is. <laughs> we only covered up till through Crenshaw, so we got to still talk about Hawthorne and that's right the IKCA days. So uh, again, thank you so much. I hope the rest of your trip and uh, your New Year's party goes off without a hitch and everybody has fun. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Steve. Alrighty. Signing off. Chuck Sullivan has done so much for so many people. I really had fun talking with the man and getting to hear about so many stories from the early days of Kempo in Southern California. I'm looking forward to doing part two or three or four with Chuck here in the future. He's had a long career, so who knows how many episodes it's going to take to cover it all. We did 90 plus minutes and we barely got through the mid 60s. I'm grateful Chuck let me come spend a couple of hours with him on his vacation and thank you again to his family for letting me steal him to record this one. I really did have a blast. Looking forward to episode number 12. Episode number 12 is Joe Ribello Redux. Why Redux? Because we had audio issues with the first one. We were supposed to get this one published back in December, but I was really new to the podcast gig, so I messed up the audio somehow, and we really didn't have a podcast. So luckily, Joe is a super cool dude, and we got back on and re-recorded. He's got a 162 IQ, photoidetic memory, and his life is the martial arts. He's got a huge patch collection, a gigantic video library, and has a lot of really cool stories from the road and from his experiences in the martial arts. Tune in to hear all about it in episode number 12. If you like what you're hearing so far with these episodes, share the positivity. Ripples in a pond, people. Tell someone you think might enjoy it. Share those links around. Together we can help people just by letting them share in the great messages our guests bring to every episode. Find us at artistsemotion.com, artistsemotion.com slash iTunes, artistsemotion.com slash Google Play. On our Facebook page, Artist Emotion. You can email pod at artistsemotion.com. That's it for this episode. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch you next time on the Artist Emotion Podcast.